This audio recording is of our regular Sunday service, the 10th of March, 2019, at Restoration Road Church in Snohomish, Washington. The speaker is Russell Jander. More information can be found at rdchurch.com. morning. In a world of stock photos, we get a little bit um, overloaded when we look at pictures, but the picture that was on um, the advertisement for this, av- this afternoon's dinner with John Wagenfeld um, is not a stock photo. We were sitting in a church that had palm frond walls and cement block walls, and the village name meant village of wizards. The woman giving her testimony was told when she moved into the village that she could not live there unless she was going to become a witch. And she was testifying to God's very great power in healing her and in bringing her out of darkness. And meanwhile, that little girl that you saw was over the back wall of the church, grinning her heart out the whole time. That was her personality, and when we talked with her, she just was so full of life, and it was just the light of Christ in this very dark place that was almost 100% Muslim. So on that note, um, we can rejoice to gather here in more freedom and liberty than that and read from God's holy word, Romans 12, 14 to 21. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil but overcome evil with good. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, you seated. If you're at all like me, uh, oh, I didn't tell you even. My name is Russell Jander, just so you know. Uh, If you're at all like me, uh, hi. um, The noise and the constant stimulus in this life uh, gets me on my heels a lot. Um, Between the news and social media, I'm really glad we have that loop now that uh, makes it so we're not as tied to that, but politics and new shows and new styles and new trends, there's always something to pay attention to and always having it instantly for me on my smartphone in my pocket, I find myself deflecting a lot, almost feeling like I'm juggling and, uh, and then I'm in a perpetual cycle almost of reaction. 
I constantly feel like I'm reacting to life as if I'm a victim to it. And when I get this way, I can't seem to handle it all, and I ultimately, I ultimately try to justify myself. When I do that, it's somehow super easy for me to point the finger at other people in my life who might be failing too. And I completely ignore what's going on in my heart. I, want, I bring that up because in the text in front of us this morning, we're having some questions that are being raised. And those questions are going to challenge you. I know because they challenged me. It's so easy to judge others and go, yeah, I could probably do better there, but at least I'm not as bad as that guy. Um, you know, Sam warns us with, with this a lot. Um, when he's preaching his sermons, he says, we, all, we often think, you know who should really hear this sermon is so-and-so. I'm encouraging you this morning to take a deep breath and resist the urge to think how this might apply to someone else. Each one of us has a deep need to wrestle with what's bursting from the page this morning. And I know this because I've been getting punched in the face with it all week. Our need is great. My need is great. But His grace is so much greater. Let's come to before Him and pray before we dig into this. Father God, we thank You. We thank You that You are great and we are not. We thank You that You have given us a faith that is able to recognize that. We thank You that You have unlocked for us the ability to see who you are. We thank you that you've given us your Holy Spirit to interpret this scripture for us so that we can see you more beautifully. Pray, God, that you would open our hearts, that you would humble us, that you would take us from where we want to go and put us where you want us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We've been digging around the last three weeks, walking through uh, 2 Thessalonians. Um, we've been seeing the implications of what our eternal life with God means on how we should live our current life now, um, how our second life informs or should influence our first life. We saw how God's promises to us deepen our ability and in, uh, our ability to endure and stand firm through the promised suffering that's before us as we walk in faith. And it also showed how prayer was illustrated as the key to enduring and standing firm in faith. These attributes of the Christian life, God's power and the power of prayer and faith, are an absolutely appropriate backdrop for what we're about to launch into in Romans 12, 14 through 21. Before we get there, let's get a context of, of Romans a little bit. This is a book that was written by Paul uh, to the Gentiles. He's been trying to be as accurate as possible with the fact that our salvation is by faith alone and a gift of God. We see him expand on the ways God is orchestrating the hearts of those he's calling to himself in 11, 23-25, the purposes of of directing for the purposes of directing his listeners towards humility. He's trying to say, God is the one who's doing this. 
He's the one to be praised, and we are to submit to that. And Paul puts that humility on display in 32, where he essentially says, what we meant for evil, God means for good. And the fact that God uses sin to show the riches of his mercy blows Paul's mind so much that he bursts out into almost song in 33 through 36, basically singing a worship song about the greatness of God. He's saying, God, you're so amazing, I will never be able to figure out who you are or how great you are or how you think, all these things. He is so far beyond anyone's ability to understand. And so he says, in reverence, awe, prayer, worship, all these things rooted in the power of God-given faith, that is our backdrop for what we're having to go through here in chapter 12. To give you a summary of chapter 12, it's really brief. It's love. All of chapter 12 can be thought of in love. Uh, feel free to turn there. Uh, now, turn, turn to chapter 12 in Romans if you're not already there. Um, keep your hand there because we'll be uh, going back to, to this quite a lot. But I'll give you uh, a little bit of a summary of the first half of 12 before we launch into our, our core verses. Um, this chapter can almost be thought of in three sections covering how a Christian ought to love, how someone who is in Christ should love, and in three different lenses of how to look at this. So in the first lens, we're seeing how a Christian shows love to God. In verse 1 through 2, we see how Christians should show love to God, um, which is through giving our lives over to him, is what it says. In light of Christ, our bodies are now living sacrifices, it says, to God. In Christ, through the power of the Holy Spirit, we have died to our old selves and have been raised with Jesus to a new life. And as a side note, this is what's so beautiful about baptism. At that moment, we're saying, God, my life is in your hands. I no longer want to serve myself, but instead help me serve you. And through the Spirit who comes to live inside us, when we repent and believe, this is now the lifestyle. Daily sacrifice, dedication to God. And this is holy and pleasing to him, is what it says. This is true worship, humility, humbling ourselves before God's authority, his grace, and his mercy. And then, our next lens of love is how we then love the church, how we love the body. We go on to verse 3, 4, it says, by the way, anytime you see like a for or a so or a therefore in Scripture, it's always because there's something super awesome beforehand that you really need to know before you get into this. So that's what he's saying here is for, because of that humility piece that we've been talking about with God, what does he say? He says, for... I lost my spot. Where is it? Which verse is that? Oh, four. Four is on verse four. Of course it is. Four. As in one body, we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. So, though, many are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Like Paul's been driving hard throughout Romans, it's God who's changing hearts, not us. It's amazing to see this. 
But he says in verse 4 um, that, oh, sorry, no, in verse 3. That's, why, that's where I got confused. The 4 is also in verse 3, guys. Come on. Verse 3. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think. There's that humility piece. But to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. This is what Paul's been driving at throughout Romans. It's God who's changing our hearts. He's the one who's exalted for that, not us. We have no grounds for taking any credit. We love anyone at all. Why? Why do we love anyone at all? We love because he first loved us. It says in 1 John 4.19. So being compelled by this truth, we as a body of believers, blown away that the creator of the universe is distributing faith to us. Out of that faith, we start using the giftings we have, which is verse 4 through 8. It's a list of the giftings. And then in verse 9, we get this list of things we should do and not do, ways of operating as the body of Christ. Let love be genuine, it says. Then concludes with seek hospitality. Seek and show hospitality. To be honest, these things listed here in 4 through 8, um, they're simply not possible, not completely possible if pride is in the picture. Humility is almost, if you will, follow with me on this image, but humility is almost the gas in the car of Christian living. Otherwise, this love that Paul is describing, if we don't have that gas of humility, this car isn't going anywhere. We have to have humility in the tank. Let love be genuine or without hypocrisy is how it's translated elsewhere. That, that word carries connotations of acting and pretending. What he's calling us to is a love that's not an act. We're to outdo one another in showing honor because, not because it somehow benefits us. We're doing it because God is amazing and we are not. Therefore, your needs and desires are what I care about more than my own. So I honor you. This whole section culminates in the concept of pursuing hospitality or seeking and showing hospitality. Paired with a seemingly soft word like hospitality, pursue hits my ears a bit like try. Um, like try and be hospitable. But that word, seek and show, or translated elsewhere, pursuit, it's linked to words in other places in Scripture to communicate urgent words, like run, like, like fast, to try to catch something, go earnestly, seek and grab hold of something, also to run after someone. We'll dig in a bit more on that later, but for now, just know that this thing, hospitality, seems to be the summation and encapsulation of what's being talked about from 9 to here in verse 13. And it serves as kind of a couple in the train cars of these three different kinds of love. We have the engine of showing love to God through worship and sacrifice. The next car of showing love to one another in the church, serving humbly and diligently as to the Lord, it says. And now, hospitality links us to what we're about to launch into in the rest of the chapter. But remember this, Paul seems to think, and I agree with him, that hospitality is not just a thing that happens. The pursuit of hospitality is essential to the life of a Christian. 
And it's an expression of love without hypocrisy or genuine love. Hospitality is the manifestation of God-glorifying, pride-mortifying love. So, both categories of love, love for God and love for the body, are accomplished with humility as the core motivating factor, but the next verses help us explore how we're called to love outside the church. Verse 14 through 21 shows us deep, rich truth about the nature of God and how he intends to shape our hearts in light of genuine love, love without hypocrisy. We're going to see the Bible do at least three things. It's going to take, one, the friction that can exist in our relationships in the world and turn that into authenticity. It's going to take, two, the fracture that can occur, the broken and distant relationships that happen when friction takes root, and we'll see instead amicability or peaceful living grow. And finally, we'll see, three, fury and vengeance are turned to righteous activity. And blessings. So three things, three transformations. Friction to authenticity, fracture to amicability, fury to activity. So let's dive in. First, friction. Let's do it. First, friction. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Why are these things next to each other here? Rejoice with those who rejoice. Yeah, yeah, I get that. People are happy. I'm happy. Weep with those who weep. Oh, you're sad? I'm sad, right? Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. That sounds hard. And it makes me think maybe I've missed something in this rejoicing and weeping. Paul is calling us to something here that's hard, and a quick read past might miss it. Scripture is fiercely contextual, meaning nothing is just randomly placed in Scripture. So if it's hard to bless those who persecute you, when do you think it might be hard to rejoice with someone who's rejoicing? Maybe when there's conflict with that person. This rejoicing and weeping is in the context of someone who's caused you suffering. We don't want to see people we don't like happy, right? We don't naturally say, oh, that person hurt me. You know what I want for them? Good things, right? We want to see them have all the good things. No, we say karma, right? We say, man, I can't wait to see that person get what what they have coming to them. Or if we've been hurt by someone and we see them sad, what's our immediate reaction? Good. Finally, they get what they have coming. This is wrong. And this is not what God's word is calling us to act like. So why does this happen? Why are our hearts like this? Or at least I know mine is. Maybe this isn't your regular struggle. But I know when pushed to the extremes, this is the reaction of our heart. That boss that never recognizes your contributions and is always you know, ignoring what it is you have to say, undermining your ideas. His child tragically dies in a car accident. 
Are you weeping with them? Or that neighbor couple, always letting their dog poop in your yard. They have their first baby. Are you rejoicing with them? This is friction. We're more concerned with how other people's lives affect us than we are with the fact that other people have lives. That other people have relationship with God, whether they know it or not. And Paul's saying, by rejoicing with those people, you're joining with them in this walk. And you're increasing the likelihood that they recognize God as the giver of gifts. Every good gift comes from the Lord, James 1.17. And they have a new baby. Children are a reward from God, Psalm 127.3. You get the chance to say these things to them if you're not too preoccupied with your own interests. Or as we covered earlier, loving with hypocrisy or not being genuine. You might bring them cookies and leave them at the doorstep and say congratulations to make yourself feel better, but you wouldn't dare knock on the door. Embrace them. Ask them if they need help. These are super minor examples. But if we're having trouble living out the love we're being called to in these small areas, imagine what it would be like if real problems started showing up. We've been discussing how laws in our country are shifting, making it increasingly challenging to hold firm to biblical truth. How are we going to respond to those in authority over us persecuting us for our beliefs? Will we have disdain? How dare they tell us what to do? Heathens! Is that how we're going to respond? Or will we respond differently, radically, biblically? Verse 16 shows us why we might not respond the way we're being called to here. And it's because we're seeking our own desires first. Do not be haughty, it says. Don't be proud. Pride creates friction between us and everyone around us. And it reveals that there's friction between us and God, that our faith is rooted in something tangible, like preserving our well-being or our way of life, which will fail us every time and in the long run will prove to be worthless, which is what we'll see in the coming weeks when we launch into Ecclesiastes. Subtle plug. Stay tuned for that. Um, we cannot live in harmony with one another, as it says in verse 16, when this friction controls us, when pride motivates us. And this working out of pride and friction in our lives leads to fractured relationships. Look at verse 17 and 18. Repay no one evil for evil. When we consider how this plays out in our tendency, we say, get them back, right? That's how we automatically react. Look at the second half of 17. Give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. Let's say, for instance, you've heard this passage before, though, and you thought, okay, the Bible says don't fight back. I'm not going to fight back. What's our next reaction? Just ignore it, right? Inactivity, inaction. What if I told you that that was equally as damaging to relationship as retaliation? What verse 17 says is not give careful thought to ignore it as much as possible. No, it says to do. Do what is honorable. 
In some instances, I can imagine ignoring evil done against you as an appropriate response, but hopefully it encourages unity. In verse 18, if, if possible, as far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Not live separately from all, live peaceably. And if we're going to do that, we have to retain relationship by pursuing active love that puts away our desires for the sake of blessing others. We're being called to something better than fractured relationships. God has a plan for sending us out in the world, but my heart, my heart fights against this. So our pride and our flesh has produced friction in our relationships and our interactions, causing fractured relationships. And now we're going to see how fury then takes over. Look at verse 19. Beloved, he says, if he knows that everything... Oh, beloved, he says. Um, It's almost as if he's understanding or recognizing that everything he's set up to this point has been pretty hard to take. So he's saying, friends, basically. Friends, stick with me. We're going somewhere. So stick with me. Verse 17, beloved, never avenge yourselves. Now here's the deal. Evil is bad. Persecution is wrong. Suffering at the hand of someone else is not right. However, our fleshly reaction to these things, that is to say the fury that arises in us that makes us want to react, is also flawed. We are a broken people who are being restored into Christ's likeness, but our flesh remains and waits for moments like someone wronging us to crop up in our lives and justify our furious reactions to harm, hatred, and pain. Now here's the thing. Our fury is misguided, but God's is not. God is perfectly furious with sin. Evil is real, so real that the very Son of God, who by His own word created everything, everything, had to come down and die for it. Die for that evil by the hands of things he made. Evil so real that there is eternal punishment waiting for those who don't repent and believe. Look at verse 19. Leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. We are not in charge of punishing the world. That's God's job. But instead, we are called to love it. So how do we do this? We have a crisis here, right? I know I've tried over and over to love this way on my own, to live in harmony with other people without that friction, to stay connected and not fracture relationships, and to not act out when I'm wronged or hurt. Just muscle through, right? Find a way. Keep trying. Surely I'll be able to figure it out. If I just ignore the bad and look at the good, right? One day I'll become a good enough person to do this on my own, right? I mean, God would surely at least approve of the attempt, right? I'm standing here this morning. And if you don't hear me say anything else, hear this. That is wrong. That is our heart wanting glory. 
that belongs only to God. That is the enemy tricking you away from hearing and believing and following the truth. And that is the world wanting to keep you living as they are, in the dark and blind, wanting to keep you down with them. So what do we do? What hope do we have? If I can't do it on my own, and God's word is telling me I'm supposed to, how does this work? Anytime we see something seemingly impossible, we need to first look at the only one who lived a perfect life on this earth. Bless those who persecute you. How did Jesus respond when people persecuted him? He laid down his life for them. Weep with those who weep. How did Jesus respond when Lazarus died and people blamed Jesus? They blamed Jesus for letting him die. Shortest verse in the Bible. He wept. Jesus wept. Jesus had every right to come down here with us and live in friction with us. He was perfect. And we are not. He could have come and railed against us for all the wrong things we were doing and said, with Lazarus, why are you crying about this? Yeah, I mean, I'm about to raise him from the dead anyways, so like, it's not a big deal, guys. Come on. Quit crying. But that is not the God who made us. That is not the God who saved us. We serve an amazing God who identified with us in our suffering and who lived authentically with us instead of in friction with us. Verse 17, do not repay evil for evil. Live at peace with all. How did Jesus do this? By associating with the humble. Philippians 2.6, Christ, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. He is God, and yet how did he behave? He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Our Lord did the opposite of repay evil for evil. He endured the evil of this life and went to the cross to save us. Our relationships with the world are fractured by our pride, but our Lord Jesus lived the life we couldn't live and died the death we deserved. And that brought peace between God and man. In verse 20, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will be heaping burning coals on his head. We'll get to the heaping burning coals in a second. Um, but let's tackle this enemy piece first. We were his enemies. How did he treat us? We were enemies of God, Romans 5.10, and hostile in our minds, Colossians 1.21. But he didn't treat us as we deserved. The fullest expression of this is in the Lord's Supper. It's in communion, which stands as an image for us of what Christ's work on the cross was. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. We were hungry. We were hungry for life, and God gave us bread, his body, broken for us. We were thirsty. Jesus gave us wine, his blood that was poured out for the forgiveness of sins. He knows our deepest need is life in him. And though we were his enemies, he provides abundantly through his life, death, and resurrection. And when we see this, 
when we see how undeserved we are of this overflowing grace for us, our response is penitence. It's repentance. It's gratitude and subjection to him, which is likely what's being referenced in verse 20 with the heaping coals on the head. Commentators and scholars disagree on what that phrase literally represents, but if this whole passage has been driving for love in relationship and hospitality, it seems counterintuitive to imagine it's literally meaning that providing for the needs of those who harm you somehow hurts that person. There are some who believe it refers to an Egyptian ritual dealing with shame, but in the same way that we leave room for God's wrath, we also leave room for God's conviction. What's so beautiful about looking to Jesus is that we see in this, Jesus didn't come to harm us in our need. But he sacrificed himself for us, providing life to us. And this brings us to deeper repentance because we see how undeserved we are of this kind of grace. And it's a burden of conviction that's only lifted by Jesus. Ultimately, we see that God is in control of provision and penalty, virtue and vengeance. And when we deny Christ as the perfect and only way to be reunited with God, our only response to the world is fear and friction and anger and bitterness and separation and isolation and fury and vengeance. But when in faith we repent and rejoice in Christ as our only hope and salvation, watch this, we're freed from our pride that caused those selfish outcomes of friction and fraction and fury. So we don't have to fear the world. So here are three ways that our freedom leads to love for the world. Our reverence to God and humility before him and others through faith in our Lord Jesus Christ frees us to love in these three ways. We are freed to love authentically. Remember, it's our pride that causes friction, that allows us to hate, or as Paul says it, love ungenuinely or with hypocrisy. When we seek our pride, our love for the world is just an act. When it really comes down to it, sometimes we just want people to think we care about them. We want it to appear like we care about them, so they'll like us and respect us. So where does this true, truly authentic love come from? Turn with me to Romans 6. Romans 6, 17 through 18 says this. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient, obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you are committed. And having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. And jump to verse 22. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. You don't need to fight to protect your ego or defend your honor because you already have everything as an, as an inheritance. Romans 8.32 says, He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he also not with him graciously give us all things? We have all things with Christ as an inheritance. Why are we fighting for the things that are tangible? We have an eternal inheritance 
Faith defeats pride because our hope in our eternal reality, that second life we've been talking about, the last three weeks in Thessalonians, our hope in what's to come frees us from trying to accomplish what we think we need here. What do we think we need here? We think we need validation? The God of the universe died so that you could be an heir to the throne. You've been validated in Christ. Vindication? Whatever hardships you suffer, they have been and will be vindicated. Christ paid the ultimate penalty. He paid it on the cross. And those who don't believe will be dealt with at the righteous hand of God. So we're freed to compassion based on the humility unlocked in our faith in these truths. Do you see that? When we glorify God, we don't have to glorify ourselves. When we're busy relying on His promises, we're not taken up by the lies of this world and of our flesh. So then, we live in harmony with one another because we're not proud. And instead, we desire to associate with the humble. Two, we're freed to love amicably. It's, sorry, it's a big word. I wanted to keep the A alliteration. Uh, amicably characterizes goodwill and, and friendliness, living together in peace. Our hearts naturally want what we want, but Christ died rose again, and ascended to heaven. And he sent his spirit to live inside of us, to help us and shape us and mold us into Christ-likeness. This is the same Jesus that condescended to become like us, even though he was God. So if his spirit is living in us, we subject ourselves to one another in order to make peace together. Go to Philippians 2.3. Philippians 2.3 says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. There's that pride thing again. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, the most humiliating form of death possible. By faith, the Holy Spirit becomes a mediator between us and God, and we're not fractured in our relationship to God anymore. And that enables us to not fracture our relationships with the world as well. By God's grace in Christ, we adopt the same attitude as Christ, which is what? Self-sacrificial humility for the sake of glorifying God and building his kingdom. And as we do that, we stop repaying evil for evil. We think about honoring others and living at peace. This unity this amicability and peaceability with the world then also eliminates the fury that we talked about earlier. 
that seems so present and waiting in our hearts to act in vengeance, which is the third way we're freed to love. We're freed to love actively. In Christ, our desire to avenge ourselves, to get revenge or repay evil, that desire has been, is being completely consumed by the work God has already done through Christ. And what God will do at the coming of Christ when he comes back to set all things right. So if pride and revenge are no longer our concern, we can rejoice in what Christ has done and what's to come. And our rejoicing in him, that unlocks the chains that were binding us to our desires. And we're freed to take loving action towards our enemies. Galatians 5 13 through 15 says this, For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. We use our freedom to serve in love. We get to fight evil with love. Don't be conquered by the evil, but conquer evil with good. Our faith shifts our focus from ourselves to God first and then to others. His glory shifts our gaze from us to him first, and then to others. His power, his promises, shift our priorities and our performance. The list goes on and on. So if you're here today, and you're not a Christian, repent today and believe in what Jesus has done for you. Are you tired of trying and failing on your own? There's another way, the only other way. It's by bringing your eyes away from yourself and looking instead at Jesus on the throne in heaven, ready to give you his spirit and unite you in relationship to God. Come up after and talk to me. Ask me questions. Don't be afraid. I can't wait to talk to you about Jesus. If you are a Christian, and you don't know this freedom, if you're not seeing this fruit in your life, I know in preparing this sermon, God shined a light on so many places in my heart where I'm in friction with other people in my life, where I've separated completely from relationships that are just too difficult, or even times when I want to lash out when someone's wronged me. Go back to the truth. Open the word and be honest with what it says about God and about who you are in light of what Christ has done. Allow yourself to be awed again by the glory of our God in the light of our risen Savior. And let that be the thing that motivates your every action with the unfading hope of what he's promised us. Eternal life with him. But if you are in Christ and you feel like, 
yeah, my faith is rooted firmly in everything he has done and nothing that I've done, then what are you dropping on your face before God about? Ask him to reveal what ways has your life grown isolated. Where can God be more and more replacing the heart of stone with the heart of flesh that grieves for the fact that there are lost and alone people out there with destruction before them, a heart that leaps with joy for the hope that's before you and anyone who would repent and believe. What are the ways you can bless the unlovable among us? Not just once, but steadily over time. Who in the world have you unintentionally disregarded that might be right there waiting for a relationship with you? We need to nurture relationships with the lost. We need to keep speaking those seeds of truth so that when they see the example of Christ-like living in you and the ground of their heart starts to clear of the weeds and the brambles and the good good soil starts to show up, ready for that seed, that truth that you've been speaking, free of fear, full of faith, and rich with authenticity, it finally starts to take root in their heart, lasting root, and there, we have the beginning of discipleship. Love is a vast and beautiful thing that we get to wield in this world. 1 John has a beautiful encouragement for us. After showing in chapter 4, verse 10, that we did nothing to earn God's love, instead God showed us what his love looked like in sending Jesus on the cross for our sins. That God revealed love to us not by us loving him, but rather that he loved us and sent his son to be a sacrifice for our sins. Verse 16 says this, God is love, illustrated through the cross. And the one who abides in love, what is that abiding? It's faith in the gospel abides in God, and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because as he is, and what is God? Love. God is love. It just said it. So are we in this world. We are love, because God is love, without hypocrisy. Because why? There is no fear in love the fear that stems from pride. But perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment. And the punishment for us, you guys, was on Jesus. It's done. There's nothing to fear. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love because their faith is not in the completed work of Christ. We love because he first loved us, as we read earlier. Now pay attention here. If anyone says, I love God, but hates his brother or sister, he's a liar. Why? For the person who does not love his brother or sister, whom he has seen, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. Faith! Because he has no faith. What is faith? Hebrews 11.1, being sure of what you hope for, the conviction of what is not seen. And where is faith found? 
Hebrews 12, 2, Jesus, Jesus, the founder and source, the perfecter of our faith. Faith is how we love the world. Faith is how we conquer fear. And it's by grace you've been saved through faith, and it's the gift of God, not of works, so that no one should boast. There's that pride thing again. It's God who's doing it. Everyone who believes, it continues in chapter 5, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father also loves whoever has been born of him. By this we know that we love God's children, when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God. You ready for it? That we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome. Remember, we're freed. We're freed to obey. The burden was on Christ, and now we get to live in the world in the freedom that he purchased. Because everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, it says. Everyone who loves God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world. What is it? It's our faith. Faith in God's promises. Faith in God's promises through Christ Jesus conquers the world. So don't be afraid. If you're in Christ, the 